Informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Jesse Allen. Well, we got plenty of ground to cover. Thanks for joining us here today on AOA, Agriculture of America. Great to have you along for the conversation. I'm your host, Jesse Allen. Coming up on today's show, we're going to talk with South Dakota Senator John Thune. Coming up here in just a little bit, we're going to get an update on the appropriations battles on Capitol Hill, farm bill prospects, and much more. We're going to have that conversation with Senator Thune in just a little bit in segment two. In segment three, we're going to talk about a new dairy report out from CoBank and get some thoughts on the dairy markets as a whole. Corey Geiger, the lead dairy economist with CoBank, going to join us in segment three today. And then we'll wrap up the show. We're going to take a look at some latest news headlines here in segment four of AOA. First up, though, I want to get right to this conversation. I've been hearing a lot in the news lately about the Chevron deference and having some court cases at the Supreme Court right now. And there's a potential that the Chevron deference could go away. What would that mean for folks throughout the country and agriculture? Joining us to talk more about that he is with pacific legal foundation jeff mccoy is with us here today jeff thanks for joining us on aoa appreciate the time hope you're doing well thank you so much for having me so for starters for folks who maybe are not super familiar with the chevron deference can you give us just a little bit of a background and get us up to speed on what exactly we're talking about here jeff yes chevron deference comes from a case about 40 years ago from the Supreme Court. And basically what the court said there is that courts should defer to agency interpretations of statutes. And what that means is that if there's any question about what a statute means, the courts should defer to what the agency says rather than what they normally do, which is go through the process of trying to figure out what Congress meant when it passed the law. Okay. So thinking about this and obviously at the heart of this deference is, you know, deferring to federal agencies, et cetera. I mean, talk about some of the impacts that we've seen the Chevron deference have, uh, you know, especially on agriculture. I could probably think of a few like things like WOTUS, et cetera. There's, there's been a lot of impacts, hasn't there, Jeff? Yeah, there's there's several different I mean, any stat. Obviously, if you work at ag, you know that there's a lot of agencies that can affect what you do. Yeah. From uh, the Endangered Species Act, where they've asked for deference on on what is a, a subspecies, <laughs> and the Clean Water Act that you mentioned, where there's agricultural exceptions in the Clean Water Act that mm-hmm. are supposed to help prevent farmers from being tied down with all of these onerous regulations. But again, the agency often receives deference from a court, which means that they win, their interpretation wins. Uh, another that your your listeners might be familiar with is Swamp Buster, which is the statute that says that farmers can't farm what they what the agency determines to be wetlands without losing access to agricultural insurance and other USDA programs. And that that there have been courts that have called this a bureaucratic labyrinth, but still what happens is ultimately the agency gets to decide, even though Congress has amended Swamp Buster several times to make it more farmer friendly, the agency's interpretation receives deference and ultimately is how courts decide these cases. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I know the Supreme Court is evaluating right now whether to keep the Chevron deference, and this could have wide-ranging impacts. What is the latest uh, ongoing with this, Jeff? I, I mean, how soon could we hear something, do you think, from the Supreme Court? Where do things stand currently and possibly seeing this deference go away? Yeah, the Supreme Court heard two cases, uh, Loper Bright versus Romano and Relentless versus the Department of Commerce last week that where they're going to determine whether or not court should continue to apply this Chevron deference. And this case demonstrates 
really the problem with Chevron deference. What these cases were brought by small fishermen in the Northeast, and the Department of Commerce wanted to require that the small boats uh, have a, a monitor on them, a government monitor on them, to make sure that they are complying with regulations. But even worse, the Department of Commerce said that these fishers, fishermen, fisherwomen have to pay for the monitor's salary up to, there was statistics done, which could be up to 50% of their revenue for that day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The problem is that the statute doesn't allow this. And actually, there are specific areas where Congress said the Department of Commerce could charge up to about 3% for monitors. And those were in areas that were really big and are well known for large scale operations. So the statute, Congress specifically said, here's where you can put monitors on, here's where you can make them pay, not these small fishermen, but the the Department of Commerce said, nope, we're going to make you pay for it. And the court said, well, we don't know, the statute doesn't really say, so we'll just defer to what the agency says. It, to me, it seems that with this uh, entire Chevron deference and some of the possible leanings here of the Supreme Court, it, it just seems to me that there's a, a chance here if the doctrine completely goes away uh, to return more power possibly to Congress and the courts instead of letting certain agencies, you know, kind of run the law, so to speak, and basically just return agencies to enforcing the law. That's what it kind of seems to me. Is is that kind of the, what you're feeling here, Jeff? Yeah, absolutely. And that was the big discussion and oral argument last week at the Supreme Court about this is really who is supposed to interpret this. And there were some justices who said, well, is this really courts making policy? But there were others that pointed out, which I think was correct, that really Congress sets what the agency can do. If they don't say that the agency can do something, then there shouldn't be an assumption that the agency can do it because Congress is the one who makes the laws. And oftentimes mm -hmm. with the Chevron deference, you see the agencies upsetting or going against the congressional policy. And I do think that there is it's always hard to predict about what the Supreme Court will do based on oral argument. Sure. But even those that were sympathetic to Chevron recognize that there should be a greater role in courts interpreting the statutes. It shouldn't just be an easy way out of cases. They, If they are going to find ambiguity in a statute, then they really have to do the work to get there. And so I think even if Chevron's not totally overturned, we are going to see probably less deference to agencies because courts will hopefully go through a very rigorous analysis of what the statute says rather than just saying, throwing their hands up and saying whatever, just go with what the agency says. Well, with that, Jeff McCoy with Pacific Legal Foundation. Jeff, thanks for joining us and telling us more about the Chevron deference and where things stand. We appreciate the time. Thank you so much. All right, coming up next here on AOA, we're going to have a conversation with South Dakota Senator John Thune. He joins us on the way right after this. Heading to NCBA's Cattle Convention on Friday, February 2nd. Stop by USMEF booth 1807 with me, Jesse Allen. We'll be broadcasting AOA Live with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association and the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Stop by from 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern to learn how these organizations work together to competitively position American product as the sustainable, high-quality, premier product of choice. And don't forget to join NCGA on Thursday at 2.30 for their Learning Lounge. We'll see you in Orlando. Are you heading to NCBA in Orlando? On Thursday, February 1st, stop by Christian Hansen booth 1067 for some exciting live radio. Celebrity host Jesse Allen will be broadcasting AOA Live from Christian Hansen booth 1067 from 10 to 11 a.m. Also on Friday at 1130 in the Learning Lounge, Jesse Allen will be hosting Christian Hansen's discussion on how daily feeding of probiotics can improve the digestibility and utilization of the forages cattle are consuming.
Paid non-attorney spokesperson. Are you over the age of 60 and been diagnosed with lung cancer? If so, you and your family may qualify for a cash award. Our experienced attorneys are standing by to evaluate whether you have a lung cancer claim that qualifies you for a cash award. The consultation is absolutely free and there is no risk and no money out of pocket. We only receive a fee when we secure you and your family a settlement. 250,000 people are diagnosed with lung cancer every year. You're not alone in this battle. We can help make sure that you and your family are financially safe and that medical expenses are covered. Again, if you've been diagnosed with lung cancer and are over age 60, call now. Don't delay. There are deadlines for filing claims. We're standing by 24-7. Call us at 1-844-903-1744. 1-844-903-1744. That's 1-844-903-1744. Attorney Advertising. William Stephacker Jr. is the attorney responsible for this ad. Main office, Granton, Pennsylvania. May not be available in all states. Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? Stop. That dog does not want to be petted. (laughs) Just a little heads up before something bad happens. Move your coffee cup away from your computer. Oh, no, 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 no. So you can have more control. Stop. You're texting your boss by mistake. Uh-oh. Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. With early diagnosis and a few healthy changes like managing your weight, getting active, stopping smoking, and eating healthier, you can stop pre-diabetes before it leads to type 2 diabetes. It's easy to learn your risk. Take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Warning, the cap is loose on that catch-up. Don't wait. You have the power to change the outcome. Visit doihaveprediabetes.org today. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Information America's farmers and ranchers need. AOA. Now, back to Jesse Allen. And joining us now for a conversation, South Dakota Senator John Thune. And Senator Thune, thanks for joining us on AOA today. I know things are busy in Washington, D.C., but appreciate the time. Hope you're doing well. Indeed, we are, and we're, we're just uh, staying after it. Always good to talk to you. Thanks, Jesse. Well, let's start uh, with an update on where uh, the appropriations process stands. I know, of course, we extended our deadlines here and uh, had another continuing resolution to keep the government open. And now we're looking at March as our target, uh, looking to give us a little more time to try and get business done. What's the latest on on that front, Senator? Well, um, that is, you know, we're operating, as you said, on a short-term spending uh, resolution we have now until March. Uh, we should be every day in the United States Senate taking up individual appropriation bills. We are not. <laughs> the uh, leader in the Senate, the Democrat leader, Chuck Schumer, has uh, has opted not to put bills on the floor, and uh, it re- which is really unfortunate because we need a regular appropriations bills. If we're going to do these, do the, uh, the, you know, the funding of the government and uh, make sure using taxpayer dollars wisely and well, we need to have the accountability that comes with moving these bills individually. And too often of late, what what happens is, and I think, again, this is by design in many respects by the Democrat leader, is he lets them all pile up at the end and then forces everybody to vote on a big, you know, combines all the bills into one, groups them into one, and forces people to, to take or to leave it. That's not the way to do these. There are 12 individual appropriation bills. Um, they were reported out of the Senate Appropriations Committee back in June and July. In fact, the last one came out July 27th. We actually did three of them on the floor in the month of October. And but since November one, uh, Schumer has yet to bring up another single appropriations bill. So we are continuing to operate on these continuing resolutions. It's a it's a it's a terrible way to you know to fund the government. It's a terrible way to run the government. And here we are fully into this fiscal year, and most of the um, funding issues have uh, been left unresolved, uh, unfortunately, because of the way that the, he's managing the Senate. You bring up a great point, and I think a, a lot of folks in farm country and rural America across the country are are getting a, a little frustrated with some of these politics that are happening, trying to keep this government funded, because you mentioned we're already into the fiscal year. I mean, these are things that this should have been done. And to your point about uh, Senate Leader Schumer, you know, the way he's running things, we're seeing similar issues on the House side as well, I feel like. 
I just feel like there's a lot of frustration out there across the country right now, and you may be hearing some of that as well, Senator Thune. I think people want to see results in the end. Um, they understand, you know, politics, and there's a certain amount of that in anything we do around here. But unfortunately, when it gets in the way of actually getting results and getting outcomes for the American people, that's what I think raises people's frustration level. And that's unfortunately, like I said, where we are. And um, I just think that uh, if we get the majority back, if the Republicans get the majority in the Senate, we, we're going to we're going to do things entirely differently because this is a this model of how to you know run a government, how to fund a government is broken, and the fact that we are fully what one two three four months into uh, the new fiscal year and still haven't funded the government for this year, let alone getting started on the funding for next year, which is what we should be working on right now, is is just it's a it's a just a really poor reflection on on the on on the uh, Senate and and the leadership of the Senate, which again. Yeah, it comes back to, to Senator Schumer. I mean, he makes the calls. He sets the agenda. That's what the Democrat leader or the leader, whoever the leader is in the Senate, Republican or Democrat, does. They set the agenda. And so the fact that we're not we're sitting around and not doing appropriations work when we've got these funding deadlines sitting out there now, they've been pushed back to March, but we're going to be up against them here any time. And I've always felt like that uh, Senator Schumer likes to pile up at the end and then force everybody to vote for one big uh, combined spending bill where you don't have the opportunity for people to have their voices heard through an amendment process or, uh, you know, any um, regular order that, uh, it, which is the way in which a lot of these appropriations bills ought to be considered. So it's, it's incredibly frustrating. Um, but, you know, uh, the, that's the hand we've been dealt until hopefully uh, a year from now we're in the majority, but we'll see how all that goes. I know, too, uh, a new farm bill, obviously, is caught up in everything that is going on. I know we got the extension of the 2018 legislation, and a lot of uh, groups in farm country are are hoping that something is done in terms of a new farm bill. Obviously, we got to get the appropriations process figured out first, but your thoughts on the prospects of a farm bill here, if we can get something done as far as funding the government. Right. Uh, also, uh uh, you know, the last, uh, the farm bill expired in, uh, at the end of the fiscal year in 2023, which was September 30th. So we ended up extending the current farm bill, uh, into the end of the, this fiscal year now in 2024. So September 30th, but you know, we need to get a five-year bill in place. People, farmers, ranchers, people in production, agriculture need certainty. And you can't just operate on extensions of the existing bill, you know, it's time for a reset. Things have changed. You got way higher input costs, fuel, fertilizer, um, you know, interest rates are, are significantly higher. So the average farm loan out there, they're paying a lot more in servicing that debt. There, there are, and then you got, you know, weakening commodity prices. So we need attention to that and to making sure that we have good policies in place. And, and that stalled out as well. Um, again, over differences in priorities, the chair of the committee, the Democrat chair, um, uh, Debbie Stab now from Michigan, uh, so far has been unwilling to consider moving resources around within the farm bill in order to strengthen the producer safety net. And um, we think that that should be the focus of the farm bill. Farm bill ought to be about farmers. And unfortunately, too often, um, the Democrats here, at least in the in the Senate, are making it about issues like you know climate, environmental policy, uh, the nutrition title, which by the way, that was plussed up 250 billion dollars um, by just administrative um, waving the magic wand at USDA without any input from from uh, from the Congress and um, which we think is not the right way to go about doing this. You know, Congress needs to be heard from. We need to put the policies in place and allocate the resources in a way that reflects not only, you know, obviously taking care of uh, important titles in the farm bill, like the nutrition title, but mm -hmm. with a clear eyed focus on what really matters. And that is uh, the, the safety net components for our farmers and ranchers. I, you brought up USDA as well, and I know Ag Secretary Vilsack has mentioned using some commodity credit corporation funds to try and help uh, figure out a new farm bill and, and provide some uh, funding from that pot. Do you agree with that, though? I know some folks have said that could be a, a quote-unquote magic bullet. Do you agree with maybe using some CCC funds? 
Well, I think, you know, you shouldn't need to use CCC funds. Um, those are kind of, those are, you know, set aside for a specific purpose. I hate to start doing that for something that's a normal thing we ought to be doing. We do a farm bill every four or five years. And, um, you know, I think my view in the farm bill, we ought to be working on making crop insurance more accessible, more affordable. Uh, we ought to be strengthening the, you know, the art program, the PLC program, the, the other, the complements to crop insurance as part of the safety net. And, you know, when you're spending $1.5 trillion, which is what this farm bill is going to cost, you would think there'd be some give and take, uh, when it comes to meaningfully funding the farm safety net and other components of the farm bill, uh, and, and be able to find, uh, you know, kind of as we have in the past, a, a bipartisan path forward. But, you know, and you can do that within, you know, just by moving resources around within the within the farm bill. Um, so, you know, we're open to suggestions that are being made about how to find resources to do some things in the commodity title of the farm bill. But it, that shouldn't be necessary. Uh, there's a way of doing this where you can just pull some of the savings. You know, they passed the Inflation Reduction Act. They had $20 billion in that for climate. Uh, there's 10 to 15 billion of that that's still available, but they won't let go of it. And, um, and we think that, uh, that should be, those are, should, those should be dollars that we are using to prioritize, um, the commodity title of the farm bill and other important, uh, pieces of the farm bill that impact, uh, farmers and ranchers and production agriculture. And, and so far we're running into, you know, a lot of resistance from, uh, from the, the, uh, the Democrats on the committee. Senator Thune, real quick uh, before we run out of time, I know you joined with Senator Rounds uh, from South Dakota this week uh, asking the USTR to start updating trade agreements uh, for the potential usage of a HPAI vaccine. Talk about the importance of that. Right. So, um, you know, the, that we've had the uh, the outbreaks had some devastating effects uh, in South Dakota. We've lost you know, more than five million birds in our state alone. And if you look at national, it's a billion dollars worth of indemnities. And so last week, uh, Senator Rounds and I sent a letter to uh, USDA Secretary uh, Tom Vilsack and uh, the U.S. Trade Rep or Trade Ambassador Catherine Tai uh, expressing support for the potential usage of a, a HPI vaccine to address the current outbreak and, and, and future incidences. So we're hoping we'll get a, a favorable affirmative response from the administration that they'll work proactively with us to resolve some of the potential trade disputes related to the use of that vaccine and and to support you know more robust research uh and surveillance because it's an issue that's not going away well with that we appreciate the time south dakota senator john thune thanks for joining us on aoa look forward to talking to you again real soon sounds good thanks jesse talk to you bye now we'll be back with more on aoa on the way right after this Are you heading to NCBA in Orlando? On Thursday, February 1st, stop by Christian Hansen booth 1067 for some exciting live radio. Celebrity host Jesse Allen will be broadcasting AOA Live from Christian Hansen booth 1067 from 10 to 11 a.m. Also on Friday at 1130 in the Learning Lounge, Jesse Allen will be hosting Christian Hansen's discussion on how daily feeding of probiotics can improve the digestibility and utilization of the forages cattle are consuming. Heading to NCBA's Cattle Convention? On Friday, February 2nd, stop by USMEF booth 1807 with me, Jesse Allen. We'll be broadcasting AOA Live with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association and the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Stop by from 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern to learn how these organizations work together to competitively position American product as the sustainable, high-quality, premier product of choice. And don't forget to join NCGA on Thursday at 2.30 for their Learning Lounge. We'll see you in Orlando. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Risvet with this market update. Grains and oil seeds this morning are mixed and hovering right around unchanged. The broader commodity sector did find some strength on optimism overnight with both the broader energy and grain and oil seed sectors moving higher. The U.S. Soybean Export Council pegs Chinese imports of U.S. beans in the current marketing year at 30 million metric tons. That is similar to the previous marketing year, but will that really happen? Now, China currently has 20 million metric tons of commitments for U.S. beans for 23-24 marketing year, with 15.5 million of those already shipped and 4.6 million still unshipped. 
USEC's China director expects China to buy an additional 10 million metric tons for shipment between February and August, and that's even though Brazilian supplies imported into China are currently about $2 per bushel cheaper than the supplies from the U.S. Gulf. Now, that is suggesting that China would depend on Brazilian supplies for crush, although policy currently doesn't allow it to import Brazilian supplies for building its reserves. Even so, though, an additional 10 million metric tons of U.S. purchases would be significantly above the 4 million purchase in the same period last year. USEC currently projects that China's annual soybean demand will maintain a 3.1% growth rate. That's taking total imports to 134.1 million metric tons per year by 2033. Yet China's Ministry of Agriculture's policy to cut soy meal inclusions and rations has reduced its rate to 13% in 2023. That is down from 14.5% in 2022, with an ultimate goal of reaching 12.5%. We're also going to keep an eye out later today for the EIA report, which will be out with their weekly petroleum status report. And within that, ethanol production could have slipped considerably last week with the extreme weather that we saw. Blender demand is projected to fall by as much as 7 to 8 percentage points. Midwest ethanol producers are thought to be making a modest profit currently. The VIX is once again drifting closer to 12 this morning. While the dollar is down considerably and crude oil prices, they're approaching 1% higher. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Ristvet. What I know about courage, I learned from my adoptive mom. She said sometimes you just gotta hold on and know we'll get through this. Mom, we are so high up. Hold my hand. (laughs) No, you hold my hand. Here we go. (laughs) Learn about adopting a team from foster care. You can't imagine the reward. Visit AdoptUSKids.org to find out more. I learned patience from my adoptive dad. All he had to say was, Hey, you got this. Just breathe. Hey. (laughs) We're pretty good. Yeah. (laughs) Might have to start a band. (laughs) I got it. Learn about adopting a teen from foster care. You can't imagine the reward. (laughs) Visit AdoptUSKids.org to find out more. This message is brought to you by AdoptUSKids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Information America's farmers and ranchers need. AOA. Now, back to Jesse Allen. Well, joining us now on the program, we want to take a look at a new report out from CoBank and their knowledge exchange looking at the dairy industry specifically. And joining us to talk about it, author of the report, he is the lead dairy economist with CoBank. Corey Geiger is with us here today. Corey, it's good to talk with you. Thanks for joining us on the program. Hope you're doing well. Jesse, look forward to talking dairy with you. Well, let's dive in, and uh, I want to get a a little background on the new report. Uh, We're looking at the the benefits uh, for the dairy industry, the adoption of genomics, and the impact it's having on sustainability. That's one of the big backgrounds it looked like to your report can you give us some just kind of the thousand foot view of uh, the new report out on the knowledge exchange mm-hmm. i think in within dairy circles and certainly among geneticists we are really good about talking about genomics but probably don't talk about that as well with the greater community around us the dairy cow is the most studied animal on the domestic animal on the planet and by taking a dna sample you know the root ball getting the DNA SNPs, we can compare a a newborn calf really to the overall population and know what 70% accuracy, what that calf will do as a cow two years later. It's an incredible science and it's really changing dairy tremendously. Well, and thinking about those changes in dairy and just all the benefits, I mean, I feel like as, as we move forward, and look at sustainability and the efficiency of our dairy herds. Uh, there, are, there are so many benefits to looking at, at different ways to be efficient on our operations, isn't it? It certainly is. And genomics goes so far beyond the production traits. That's probably the easiest thing to quantify. But we're making cows that are breeding cows that are longer lived. We're breeding healthier cows. And so we're using uh, traditional breeding tools, but throwing in the uh, DNA science of it. 
studying a genome. You know, a lot of viewers certainly have heard uh, of Ancestry and uh, all the work that's being done on finding relatives and all that. This is the same science that we're doing, except we're using it on cows. Well, and thinking about, you know, producing more milk, more butter fat, more protein with fewer resources, that speaks to the heart of, you know, sustainability and sustainable dairy production. Um, what are you seeing in terms of some of the, are, are we, I guess, are we already seeing various market impacts potentially uh, from developing, you know, our genomics and, and seeing some of this already in the dairy industry? Are we having any sort of wide-ranging impacts on, on the markets uh, overall in dairy right now? Mm -hmm. So dairy farmers are adopting this at various rates, but there's two things that are taking place. So since about the science was introduced in 2008, it was a little slow to take off, but now it's running by gangbusters. So the number one thing, most of the cows in the United States and, and heifers too are bred via artificial insemination. So uh, the bulls that are being selected, you know, prior to genomics, we were increasing at about $36 a year genetic gain, and that's leapfrog to 83. So big jump there. So that's just from the, the sire or, or dad side. Then you got the uh, what's taking place in the cows. And about 20 to 25% of the uh, animals, the newborn calves in this country, are getting tested on an annual basis. So that's one part of it. Prior to genomics, our genetic gain on butterfat pounds was running about half of a percent a year. And that's nearly tripled to 1.75% on butterfat. And the protein story is about the same. It's, it's doubled. So we are... Um, we're just being so much more accurate in what we're doing. It we is one of the big outcomes of that. I know something too. As I was looking through the report, you, you talked a little bit about uh, some of the indexes that track genetic progress. I know one of those is the Net Merit Index. For folks who maybe are unaware of what that is, can you you talk about that and and maybe what some of the data from that index has shown in, in terms of genetics and genetic selection? Mm -hmm. So the net merit index is a really good index because it puts it on U.S. dollars. So it bundles in like 40 traits into one index. So it's 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 a good uh, barometer of breeding and progress and the genetic capability of animals. So one of the big components is uh, production, of course. And then there's a bundle of health traits ranging from somatic cell count, which is an indicator of one of the large, you know, Cows get mastitis, so that's. But there's other diseases out there. Uh, then there's longevity, how long the cow will live, and then some newer traits like this feed saved uh, trait, which means some cows convert feed to milk more efficiently than others, and and that's really one of the sustainability traits that's new to that bundle. So it, it puts it all together, and we've in, in the United States we started recording production per on cows way back in 1895. Now that built over time. Then in the 1950s, we were able to cryogenically freeze semen. So you could freeze bull semen and unthought 50 years later, and it'll still result in heifer calf. So you had those two things. Uh, we started progeny testing animals, which meant uh, we would compare daughters from one bull versus the others. And then we've come a long here to the genomic side of the equation, which is a d dynamic science. So all this is built on each other. And the power of genomics is not the DNA. The power of genomics in the United States is the 123 million dairy cow records in the system that we can take one animal and compare it against the whole population. And that is the super fuel for this. Well, I know uh, folks can read through the full report uh, that you authored on the Knowledge Exchange, cobank.com, and just find the Knowledge Exchange tab. You can learn more there. Corey, I should ask you while we have you on with us here today, uh, just your overall thoughts, uh, kind of an economic view of the dairy market in general here as we begin a new year, 2024. I know dairy producers have had their ups and downs here in recent years in terms of price action and more and things like that. Just what are your thoughts on this overall dairy market picture from your economist standpoint as we begin 2024? What should folks be watching for and keep in mind right now? 
Yeah, there's a number of factors here. And certainly we talk about what's happening on a milk check and then what's happening on the feed side of the equation. So, uh, you know, corn is a commodity a lot of cows eat. That's down about $2 per bushel compared to the same time last year. And soybean meal is dropping. So on the feed side, that's a good part for dairy farmers. But uh, milk checks, we're looking about the same as we did last year. Now, drilling a little deeper, um, the class four markets, which are butter powder. So a lot of those are uh, West Coast markets, uh, especially in the Western Co uh, California, Washington and Oregon. Those prices are trending higher by two to four dollars per hundred weight uh, this spring. And class threes down. Class threes typically been a leader. So those in, uh, markets that make a lot, uh, produce milk that goes to cheese, spring's going to be a little soft. Now the second half of the year looks like it could rebound rather well. One other interesting market development in 2023. So 92% of the milk in the U.S. is priced on multiple component pricing. So we're really interested in what's the solids in the milk, not the water. And so butter fat and protein are the two biggest components. And in 2023, butter fat led, and it looks like it'll lead again this year. So people, consumers are buying full fat dairy products because they're taste good. And quite frankly, the saturated fats in them have been proven to be healthy for you this, you know, that's a big reversal on the science, Jesse. Well, Corey, uh, another thought too, with the overall economic picture that we have right now in the U.S., is there any concern uh, about consumer demand and retail demand for dairy products here as we begin 2024 from your perspective? Mm -hmm. So for dairy domestic consumption has been growing and even this past year it has now there's been a little dip here i think part of it in late in the fall and early winter uh there's you know the student forgiveness program on loan debt uh came off the books and so people are rebalancing their budgets we've seen a little bit of that but domestic dairy consumption and animal protein has been pretty strong here and should continue the u.s these days though are exporting about 16 to 18% of the milk production in the former dairy products. And exports have been a little soft because the U.S. economy has been doing rather well, but international economies have not, especially in the Southeast Asia and China. Uh, one factor here uh, is that China's gross domestic product has slid back to about 64% of that compared to the U.S. And at its height, about two, right before pandemic started in 2021, it was 75%. So China buys 20% of the internationally traded dairy products. So if China backs off, it kind of changes everything. Definitely. Well, and that's the case, uh, not only in dairy, but in a lot of our grain and livestock markets, it seems. Good thoughts uh, on what's happening in the dairy industry of the markets right now. And again, new report out from CoBank's Knowledge Exchange. You can read through uh, Corey's Dairy Cattle Genomics Quietly Improving Sustainability Report. Just go to CoBank.com and look for it under the Knowledge Exchange tab. With that, Corey Geiger with CoBank, their lead dairy economist. Corey, thanks for joining us today on the show. We appreciate the time. We'll talk to you again soon. Take care, Jesse. And once again, Corey Geiger there, lead dairy economist at CoBank. Appreciate him making the time to join us here today on AOA. Coming up next, we're going to take a look at a few news headlines, including the challenge to overturn Proposition 12. We're going to hear comments from California Assembly Republican Leader James Gallagher. Also, every day inching towards another farm bill delay. Some comments from Cassandra Kubal with the Tory Advisory Group. We'll get to those headline stories and more coming up next. Back with more on AOA right after the break. Now. We tend not to think about now. We dream about tomorrow, relive yesterday. But sometimes we don't see what's right in front of us. Victory over cancer is in front of us. Right now, cancer research is saving lives. Cancer research funded by the V Foundation is leading to new discoveries and new treatments. And ultimately, one day, victory over cancer. Give to the V Foundation. 
Right now, one out of every two men and one out of every three women will get cancer in their lifetime. Now is your moment. You may save someone you love. 100% of your donation goes directly to game-changing research. 100%. Donate at V.org. Because today's cancer research is tomorrow's victory. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. In Iraq, our truck hit a roadside bomb. I had about 16 surgeries on my hand so that I could regain function. And when I came home, I needed a new roof due to a storm. And my electrical was deemed unsafe. And I was about to lose homeowner's insurance as well. I didn't really know where to go in order to get help. And so I applied for Operation Homefront Critical Financial Assistance Program. They've really been a blessing. Operation Homefront is a safety net. A lot of veterans, they fall through the cracks sometimes. And Operation Homefront, they catch us. It's been a blessing to us. It's a blessing to other veteran families. And it's good to know that when we come home, there are people who are there that care about us and want to see us do well and want to see us succeed. And we feel it and we appreciate that. I would say you guys are angels behind closed doors. Visit OperationHomefront.org to learn more. Are you heading to NCBA in Orlando? On Thursday, February 1st, stop by Christian Hansen booth 1067 for some exciting live radio. Celebrity host Jesse Allen will be broadcasting AOA live from Christian Hansen booth 1067 from 10 to 11 a.m. Also on Friday at 1130 in the Learning Lounge, Jesse Allen will be hosting Christian Hansen's discussion on how daily feeding of probiotics can improve the digestibility and utilization of the forages cattle are consuming. Every day, our brave military men and women, along with their families, make tremendous sacrifices for our freedom. Patriotic Hearts, a nonprofit organization, is dedicated to supporting these heroes and their families in their times of need. By donating your unwanted car to Patriotic Hearts, you'll be supporting job transition and job fair programs, veteran entrepreneurship, counseling, and retreats for combat veterans and their spouses. Call 800-560-3870. You'll receive a tax deduction and we'll arrange a free pickup at your convenience. Imagine the difference you can make in the lives of those who have given so much for our country. Your car donation will directly impact military families, veterans, providing them with the support they desperately need. Call 800-560-3870. You can become a part of something bigger. Join us in our mission to uplift and honor our military community. Call 800-560-3870 to donate your unwanted card. Trains are everywhere. You should always expect one, even on private property. Only cross tracks at designated crossings that fit your equipment. If you don't fit, don't commit. Whatever you're operating, secure your load, raise your equipment, and avoid getting stuck or causing damage. Minimize distractions. Remember, noisy equipment drowns out the sound of a train. Unless you're crossing, always keep a safe distance from train tracks. Look. Listen. Live. For more info, go to oli.org. When news happens in agriculture or when the markets are moving, we've got you covered as your trusted voice in agriculture. The team at the American Ag Network has the knowledge and experience to keep you informed on the issues impacting farmers and ranchers. We've got you covered on air, online, and on demand. Find the American Ag Network on your favorite social media platforms and also follow the American Ag Today podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We are the American Ag Network. Make sure to subscribe to the Market Talk YouTube channel. You can watch our latest interviews with top market analysts in the country, find bonus content, and much more. It's easy. Just go to youtube.com slash at Market Talk Egg and hit the subscribe button. Or you can search for Market Talk Egg on YouTube. Get the latest bonus interviews, exclusive content, and more with the American Ag Today podcast. Just search for American Ag Today and give us a follow wherever you get your podcasts. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back to AOA. Well, California's Proposition 12, which has national and international impacts, will take a lot of work to overturn. California Assembly Republican leader James Gallagher explains how that would take place. 
I mean, it would have to go back to the voters. So even if we in the legislature did, it would have to go back to the voters. I think it's definitely worth consideration, something to look at. Hey, can we tweak this in a way at, or you know, at least reform this in a way that actually is workable? Gallagher says at minimum, the laws should be tweaked to not penalize out-of-state farmers. I'm tired of our own farmers getting penalized in California. We've been fighting back against that. But now when you're like hurting farmers in other states, and at the end of the day, you're hurting the consumer. I think that's what we really got to drive home is like now we're hurting consumers and the availability of food at a reasonable price to those consumers. I think really kind of driving home that message and talking to people throughout California, that could have an effect that we could you know, maybe make change there and create a, a better policy. But it's a heavy burden. And Gallagher says the U.S. Supreme Court got the ruling wrong. I really wish the Supreme Court would have decided that case in the way that I think they should have. This is clearly discrimination between states. A state has the ability to pass policy for its own state, but it can't, in effect, pass policy in other states. Unfortunately, that's not how it came out. So I think, one, we do need to try and see if we can maybe get that back up to the Supreme Court and get it hopefully overturned. (laughs) But then in the meantime, yeah, each state, I think, working in its own way to help people understand these policies really impact food, that they really impact the ability of farmers to get you nutritious food at a reasonable cost. And once again, that is California Assembly Republican leader James Gallagher. Well, of course, each passing day means getting a farm bill passed is a bigger challenge. Cassandra Kubal, Tory Advisory Group Vice President, says election years mean challenges for any legislation. Presidential election year, I think that's the key. Presidential always makes it tough for policymaking, but we add on a unique thing, I think, right now with this current Congress is we are working with slim majorities in both the Senate, which is Democrat-controlled, and the House, which is Republican-controlled. That adds another unique element that makes it a little bit harder to pass any legislation. Kubal says the clock is ticking to get a farm bill completed. I think each day when we see no progress of it coming forward, going through the motions it needs to go through, I should say, before being introduced, whether in the House or Senate, and we are anticipating it'll first be brought to the floor in the House, is a sign that it's going to be harder and harder in election year to bring it forward. There is still hope lawmakers will complete the bill this year, and she encourages farmers and ranchers to engage with their legislators on the issue. I think we are witnessing, we hear this from the leadership, in Congress that they still intend to bring it forward this year and I think they need to stay positive with that and it's a way to ensure that we're still engaging on the farm bill. Nothing's officially done and closed. So this is um, a reminder to the ag community, you need to still get out there and talk about the importance of what what matters to you with that farm bill despite whether or not it's taken up this year or gets kicked to next year. And once again, that is Tory Advisory Group Vice President Cassandra Kubal. Well, the EPA plans to limit pollution runoff from at least some meatpacking plants and launched a formal 60-day public comment period on Tuesday for a proposed rule that provides three different options. Even before the posting of the rule on the Federal Register, environmental groups were calling Monday for the agency to implement the most stringent of those rules. The EPA announced its preferred option is to strengthen effluent limitations created in 1974 and 2004 to control nitrogen and for the first time to limit phosphorus discharges. EPA said on its website, quote, the preferred regulatory option would also establish for the first time pretreatment standards for indirect discharging facilities to control the pollutants, oil and grease, total suspended solids and biochemical oxygen demand, end quote. Now, they also added, quote, the preferred regulatory option would apply to approximately 850 of the 5,000 meatpacking plant facilities nationwide, end quote. Now, two additional options proposed by EPA would apply effluent limits on direct discharges from meatpacking plants as well as pretreatment standards on facilities that indirectly discharge pollutants. According to the EPA analysis of the proposal, the total direct and indirect annual costs of the rule to meatpacking companies range from $210.3 million to about $1.1 billion. The EPA proposal would result in cutting nitrogen pollution from some of the largest meat processing plants in the country. Now, for example, John Morell and Company's pork processing plant in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, along the Big Sioux River, releases about 867,000 pounds of nitrogen annually, according to information from the Environmental Integrity Project. The EPA proposal would cut that pollution by about 92%, according to EIP. 
Now, the EPA released a proposal back in December, and one meatpacking industry group expressed general support for what the agency proposed. Chris Young, executive director of the American Association of Meat Processors, said in a December statement, that his group was encouraged by the work the EPA had conducted on the proposal. However, he said the EPA should have gathered more data before issuing the proposal. Now, the EPA's latest proposal came about after a coalition of environmental groups sued the agency in 2019 and 2022. Now, EPA has scheduled two public hearings on the proposals, the first an online hearing scheduled here for Wednesday, a second slated for January 31st at EPA headquarters in Washington, D.C. You can find more details on this story uh, with our partners from DTN Progressive Farmer and the, the author of that story, DTN staff reporter Todd Neely. Just go to dtnpf.com to find the full article. Also, as we wrap things up here on today's program, we are watching Apple demand in India. They could not be any happier about once again exporting apples to India, but Washington apple growers know there's still plenty of work left to build back what used to be our number two market. Washington Apple Commission President Todd Fryhover says September lifting of Section 232 tariffs on U.S. apple imports to India was a huge relief. So we were at the same duty as all other origins, and that spurred on the additional interest in, in exports but and then the larger crops. So we've got two, two bonuses going that have perpetuated itself into a rather dramatic increase in shipments this season versus last into India. But Fryover says regaining the market we had prior to the tariff shutting down our access to India will take some time. Certainly, India was not lacking for apples during that process. So we have a lot of work at the Apple Commission to build back that brand awareness. And it'll certainly take a number of years before we feel comfortable in that process. And exports this year, Fryover says, are doing better than what was a down year in 2023 with both Mexico and Canada. Our number one and two markets taking up some of the slack. Well, we're out of time here today on AOA. Coming up on our next program, we'll have a conversation with the CEO of NASDA, Ted McKinney. We'll talk markets as well with Tyler Shaw from agmarket.net. I'm Jesse Allen. Have a great rest of your day. Every Tuesday, we're sitting around the table sponsored by CHS, where we'll be talking with folks from throughout the cooperative system. Join us as we discover what makes cooperatives unique when there are more options to do business than ever before. We'll learn how farmers and ranchers like you benefit from a system where decisions are made by the members that own it. Tune in every Tuesday for Around the Table or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. National FFA Week is February 17th through the 24th, a week set aside for FFA students across the country to share how FFA impacts members every day. I'm National FFA Secretary Grant Norfleet from Missouri. What better way to show your support of FFA than to get involved in FFA Week? Whether it's in person, on the phone, or via social media, be sure to share your FFA stories during hashtag FFA Week, February 17th through the 24th. Adopt US Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting. A teenager learning the lingo. Today I'm going to help parents translate teen slang. Now, when a teen says something is on fleek, it's exactly like saying that's rad. It simply means that something is awesome or cool. Another one is totes. It's exactly like saying totally, just shorter. As in, I totes love going to the mall with Becca. Another word you might hear is jelly. Jelly is a shorter, better way to say jealous. As in, Chloe, I am like so jelly of your unicorn phone case. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will think you're, um, rad just the same. To learn more, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt US Kids, and the Ad Council.